And welcome to the Jewish New Year. We are coming at this with a completely fresh slate, having atoned for all of our sins either yesterday, if you're observant, and if you're not, well, hopefully you atone at some other point in life. Today is October 7th. We are getting really close. It's 25 days until the Israeli elections. I'm Dalia Shendlin here in Haaretz Studios with Anshel Pfeffer. Hi, Anshel. Thank you. I'm absolutely sure all the Jewish Israeli politicians did a great deal of atoning for their biggest sin of all, which is wasting our tax dollars by holding election after election. Now, this election campaign is frustrating for people in many ways. I mean, politicians, that is. Us analysts are thrilled with elections. Do you think some of the politicians are just a teeny bit sorry now that they took us down this road of elections number five, Angel? Well, I think that uh, there certainly are some politicians who spent uh, Yom Kippur examining their deeds and As decisions over the past year. I'm sure Nir Orbach, who until very recently was one of the main uh, whips of this coalition, uh, did uh, a lot of soul-searching. And was he right to have been the, the man who ultimately brought down the coalition, As despite his thoughts and hopes that he would find a, a, a realistic spot on one of the lists running in the next election? He's going to be unemployed in, in, in just a few weeks. So he's certainly done a lot of uh, questioning of himself. I think probably also another of the stars. I mean, these names will be forgotten very soon. Who's going to remember Nero? That is so true. We think these are the most important people I mean, right he now. Open news bulletins. Just three months ago, every day, what is he going to do? The same thing goes for Raida Rinawi Zawabi, the merits uh, Knesset member, who is no longer on the merits list as well. She's lost her job and any prospect of getting a job from the government because there were all kinds of talks Nobody's of very happy with sending her, no? her somewhere to be the consul in Shanghai and things like that. And uh, by extension, I think that amongst the party leaders, probably the one, I don't know if he spent any time praying, it's not really his tendency, but uh, uh, certainly the one who probably is most disappointed with himself in Yom Kippur, Nitzan Horowitz, said boss, who should have been the boss of Ms. Rinawi Zoabi, and According to many people, even he's admitted it kind of took his eye off the ball. And that was one of the things leading to this coalition dissolution. But then being politicians, I don't think they're really very much inclined to blaming themselves. Well, personally, I think that's a problem. Now, of course, our non-Jewish leaders, Arab politicians of any faith or the atheists among them, might be doing some soul searching around now as well. Because, first of all, what else is there to do on Yom Kippur with everything shut down? But also, there is a fresh new survey from Makan, the Arabic language, Israel TV, showing just 39% of the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel plan to vote at present. The last survey I saw focusing on Arab citizens was about a month ago, and it showed the exact same rate. So we're seeing no movement in dynamics for turnout among Arabs in Israel. Now, we discussed this in the last episode, so if you missed it, you just need to go and listen to our last episode. The real question is... Is this it? Are we not going to see any change in this electoral uh, turnout dynamic until the end? And is there any reason to think it might change? Angel, what do you think? I think we'll see lots of changes. In turnout and potential for Arab turnout? We have no idea. I mean, a fifth consecutive election is unprecedented. It's a post-pandemic election. That's not something we've had before. It's a fifth election. Every election we're having in this series Everything is, is unprecedented. new and unprecedented. So talking about turnout... In general, the general population, as well as the Arab sector, I think, is slightly... We, we have to take a pinch of salt in any prediction, even the best of polling, and we know it's difficult to poll. That even issue. the best. And you've explained it to me in the past that turnout is one of the things that pollsters have trouble at some level to, to, to predict. At this stage, it gets much more accurate, though. 
The closer okay. you get to the elections. But I think that these unprecedented factors are, are, are doubly true when it comes to the Arab sectors turn up because on top of what we've just mentioned, they, have, they haven't had three separate par- Arab parties running in the election since 2013. And, and remember, in 2013, it actually boosted turnout, the fact that there were three parties competing for the vote. There was a re- relative to the low Arab turnout. That but it was still a high got one. much higher in 2015. But then it got higher because of the journalists, and then it split. So... Who knows what the factors are going to be here? And also, this is the very first election in which the Arab-Israeli voters are going to be going to the polls after having had an independent Arab party in the coalition. That is very unprecedented. That's never happened before. That... Could that affect the turnout? Could it turn it? Could it push it down? Could it boost it at the last moment? Who knows? And I think also unforeseeable events will also play here a role, whether it's some terrible act of police violence against Arab Israeli citizens or some very radical thing that perhaps Netanyahu or one of his partners will say against the Arab minority. They could either push it down, it could boost up, who knows? And I think we're we could see something very different than what the polls are saying now, or it could be just as bad or, as the polls or even worse. Who knows? I mean, the sad thing is we know that whenever the right wing goes on the attack against Ar- the Arab community in Israeli elections, it's often considered something that boosts their turnout. I mean, this is the terrible, tragic irony that it somehow serves both the right and the Arab community. But we'll have to see. So one more thing about Yom Kippur before we leave that behind us. You know, Angela and I, we were both a little bit stymied on the following question of whether Benjamin Netanyahu fasted. We just don't really know. But why did we even why did this even come up? That's because yesterday at the very end of the fast, as far as I understand, during the prayers of Ne'ilah, he wasn't feeling very well and he was rushed to the hospital for tests. He stayed overnight. He seems to be fine. He's been released. We wish him refuah of course, but we don't really know the mysteries of his inner spiritual life, do we? I'm not going to speculate on whether Netanyahu himself fasted or not yesterday. I don't think. I think that is very much every person's private uh, those are parts of the private life of politicians, which I'm not going to go into. But is there political significance? So, yes, I think there is. And I think we saw by the way that Netanyahu's office has been trying to spin this. First of all, the way they said he he arrived independently at the hospital for, for, for a checkup. Now, there's a, a he, Netanyahu is a former prime minister, perhaps a future prime minister. There's no such he thing as arriving anywhere independently. security details. It's not like, oh, he took the bus or he walked to Shari Tedek uh, Hospital. He was taken by a convoy, not a massive one because he's not the serving prime minister, but a significant convoy of vehicles. He did not arrive independently at the hospital. That's the first thing, the first way they've been trying to spin this. And the other thing is that today when as expected, and we're all very happy that the report came that all his, uh, everything seems fine, and all his medical checks this morning were fine, and he's been released from Sharaid Sedek. He's gone for his morning walk. Now, why is it has he gone for a morning? I don't know, but why is it so important? Because at the end of the day, a lot of voters are still certainly those who are older than 30 remember the Sharon episode when there was a, there was the first episode, which didn't seem serious, and, and he, was joking, and he was joking with his doctor. And he was joking with his doctor. No, he was calling up journalists that very evening. And I remember they got the, the, the television journalists on time when they were still they were still broadcasting. And I remember, like, Ayala Hassan, on, uh, I think it was, she was then on Channel 13, overjoyed that she had just spoken to the prime minister on the phone. And he but was most fine. importantly, I'll tell you what I remember is that Eretzne Deret, a wonderful country, our favorite political satire show, had a satire well, only, of Ariel Sharon. political satire show. No, we yeah. also have Yudim Baim, which is very political. But anyway, they had a great uh, caricature parody of Ariel Sharon getting out of the hospital in his tracksuit, jumping up and down, doing 
jumping jacks. And then so 10 days later then... came the, the stroke that from which he would never arise. And I don't think that Netanyahu is in a similar medical situation to Sharon. Sharon was a beast. People who saw Netanyahu an hour before on the way, to, I spoke to someone who saw him on the way to Shul, on the way to Nila, said he looked great, him and Sarah walking down the street in Rehavia, and they both looked as, as, as well as you could expect a 73-year-old to look, but that's the fact. He is about to turn 73 in 10 days, just before the election. He's a grandfather of five, something which he doesn't usually like to talk about. He wants to, to look the picture of health, and this is something that Likud needs to nip in the bud. I've no idea what if there's anything beyond that that's being hidden from. I've no reason to believe that there is underlying medical situation, but this is something that Likud is certainly worried about. Netanyahu is, is worried not about his medical situation, but about what Israelis think his medical situation is. That's right, and he's certainly worried and concerned or taking care for what his own voters think and what voters of his block may think. And it's not a bad uh, incident to remind people that he did go to Ne'ilah. And we all, we're talking about that today partly because our main topic is going to be the 12 to 14 percent of Israeli Jewish adults who are uh, religious by their own self-definition. They are largely right-wing. We're talking 88 to 95 percent self-defined right-wing, at least in my surveys. Angela, you might have different views on that. But the point is, we are counting, or he is counting on that population to support his block. And we want to talk about their big dilemmas in this show. We're going to be inviting a fantastic expert in to discuss it. That's Yair Ettinger. But before we get there, let's talk about a few more of the quick headline updates. Anshul, what do you think are the most important quick developments that we're seeing over these last two weeks since our last show? You mean more important than Netanyahu's uh, health? There is very little more important than Netanyahu in this country, but a few things. Well, obviously, the main issue, and this is not directly linked to the election, but any important issue will be uh, connected to the election. And this is the impending, which still hasn't yet been signed. Feverish final negotiations. uh, Agreement between Israel and Lebanon over how to divide the economic waters of the two countries in Israel's north and south of Lebanon. I see you're using the terminology of the current government as opposed to the right-wing opposition terminology that these are territorial demarcations and part of Israeli sovereignty and we're giving it up. I mean, this is a big obviously Obviously, narrative is important, but economic waters are not sovereign territory, so... And the, the argument is over how to exploit them. Uh, but yes, there is also an issue, at least in the public's mind here, of sovereignty. Even though legal jargon says this is not this is not sovereign. We have to explain that's because Israel demarcated this line unilaterally and it was never really internationally recognized, but now there it's are a major also international in treaties and things about how, how it should work. Uh, this, isn't, this is not the subject of our podcast. The question is how will this translate into the in the election? Will this become an issue in the election? And you're right, the word sovereignty is a powerful word, one that obviously Likud and its allies and Netanyahu himself are all utilizing here. And they're hoping that this is something that they can use to once again attack the government as being weak and 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 basically for capitulating to Hezbollah. Lapid and his partners are trying to show we are the efficient, serious government who have finally landed an agreement and diffused what could have become a war between Israel and Hezbollah. The Americans probably thought that they were also helping out the government by helping by putting quite a lot of diplomatic effort into into bringing about this agreement which once again has yet to be signed it may turn out not to have been such a great favor to the government but it very much depends on how two very very successful 
uh, PR experts, Yair Lapid and Benjamin Netanyahu, are going to spin this and who's going to give the better uh, version to the Israeli public? I think this is a very interesting situation where uh, I would slightly, very slightly disagree with your characterization that the public thinks of this as a matter of sovereignty because I'm going to venture that the vast majority of Israeli public did not really follow this issue closely before the deal was announced just a few days ago. No, and I, everybody I had agree, to do, but the yeah. question is who is going to Who's going to be able to... An impression in the public's mind, and will it be of an efficient government getting the job done, or of a weak, need, defeatist government conceding Israeli sovereignty? Exactly, and that's why I think this is such an interesting test case of whether within a few days, one side or the other will really be able to own the narrative, as we say. Uh, And I think that it's going to matter because Yair Lapid is trying very hard and fairly successfully, to be honest, to show himself as a leader on foreign affairs, which was, of course, one of Netanyahu's biggest strengths and one of his biggest points of pride. He campaigned on it in the past. Everybody's heard me say this before. And this is just another mark if it would work out, if if it does get signed. And if Lapid and the government manage to convince the public of how good it is and how much of a win-win situation it is. And at the same time, it's a vulnerability in which Netanyahu can try and take away this advantage that Lapid has accumulated over the last three months. What else happened? I just want to say, in this sense, isn't this basically just going to shore up all of their current block supporters on each side? Which is why our our, our question of whether there is anywhere a swing vote between the two blocks becomes even more important. We'll get to that very soon. That's what we're going to be talking about. So what else is important? We have some of the... Let's, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to think of how to characterize the next two items we were thinking of discussing. They are both items that reinforce the current direction of the current party. So, for example, Meirav Michaeli has been fighting for the right of the Tel Aviv light rail, which is currently under construction, shutting down the entire city for the meantime. But hopefully it will be much more efficient for later when that light rail is finally built. And she has been asserting that it needs to run on Shabbat. This is something that everybody kind of expected of her. Some people are disappointed she didn't take a stronger stance on this before. It's absolutely reinforcing what people think labor already stands for. Angela, is this going to make any difference or is just just kind of driving home the point? This is who we are. We didn't get everything done perfectly, but this is what we would do and and work on in the next government if we're part of it. Well, sadly, it's not going to make any difference. Mera Micheli has been the minister for the past year plus. Of transportation. Yes. That is why she is the one dealing with the light rail. And an issue which has been an issue for many years of public transport on Shabbat, it's not just about the light rail. You can just have a bus running on Shabbat. You don't need to to dig up half of Tel Aviv to do that. That hasn't progressed over the last year of her term. And whatever she says now is pretty immaterial because, yes, there are various planning procedures that need to be in place whether or not what what will be the timetable of the light rug, which is supposed to begin when? In Next about, November. Thank you. So over a year from now. So this is very much gesture politics. This is also an attempt by Mariam Micheli to make her portfolio relevant all the way to the election because... People aren't going to be noticing that much transport policy in the next few weeks. And this is one way of doing it. Beyond that, I don't see I don't see very much coming out of this. And do you see anything special coming out of the fact that Arye Derry is now saying that if for some reason he is disqualified from running from from being uh, uh, a minister, that he will his party will try to pass legislation to overturn that? Isn't that just so consistent with everything that this side of the political map has stood for and the challenges to the court over recent years? Is this going to change anybody's mind? Yes and no. In recent years, Derry has tried to be. To try to adopt a softer tone towards the courts, both for his own personal reasons. He needed the plea bargain to end his own tax fraud case. And 
for various tactical reasons, they decided it's not always the best thing to to be head on. And also Netanyahu had his periods of blowing hot and cold. And it seems that both him and Netanyahu are now ramping up a more strident type of rhetoric. One would assume to try and bring out the vote. They don't think that, that, that they have any wavering voters between the blocks. They need to eke out as we've said, and as we keep on saying here, their own bases turn out. Okay. We should also mention that following our last episode, which was two weeks ago, both Balad and Amichai Shikli were disqualified by the Central Election Committee based on different laws and different reasoning, but that's not the final word. Of course, that is the first stage of a process, which then is almost inevitably appealed to the Supreme Court. That Supreme Court decision will be handed down after this episode. And as we're speaking on Thursday morning... The session is ongoing both on Shikli and on Balad, and I think also on a, a appeal against the fact that the CEC says Edith Silman can run. All these things will be resolved in the next day or so. And when they are, in our next episode, we might explain some of the background of why these laws exist and how you can disqualify a candidate and how that's a challenge to democracy. Unless we have much more exciting news. Until there is then. nothing more exciting than talking yeah, but about the most exciting integrity thing, in government. The polls, what's happening there? Well, it's interesting. It's so hard to think of fabulous new headlines from the polls because they're so stable. But that's why we do have to keep our eyes on small trends. Now, some people are a little bit happy and some people are a little bit less happy because of these tiny, tiny shifts. Yesha Teed, for example. I went back to the average of their polling from the time elections were called through the end of July. And they were polling on average 21.8, let's say 22 seats on average. Now, in August, after the list closed, they went up to 23 seats. And since then, they've had an average of 23.75 seats. So they're regularly getting like 24 to 25 seats in polls now. They're up just a little bit, but the trend is pretty clear. The question is whether we can explain it. Now, who's not going up? That's Likud. Likud started the first phase of this election from the time elections were called until the end of July with a 34.7 seat average in the many polls. I'm looking at all the public polls here. At present, their average since the lists have closed on September 15th is down to 32.75. That's basically a two-seat drop. Interesting, because Bibi got all that he wanted in terms of bringing the religious Zionist parties together again. Of course, he's still coming in first by a pretty strong margin, but he doesn't like any sort of decline, does he? No, and some of the pollsters have seen an even deeper uh, dip of Likud. I saw uh, Camille Fuchs, who is also Haaretz's uh, pollster, uh, saying that in the last four months, Likud has gone from 37 in his poll to down to 31. So, yes, there is certainly a trend. You, you, you were talking about the polling averages where, as is the case usually with average, the trend is slightly less sharp. But Likud have a problem. Lepid seem to be doing better. But the real question is, does this affect the overall outcome of the blocks? And yes, Bibi wants to have more. We're already seeing him start to cannibalize uh, religious Zionism in the way he's talking to uh, religious voters about not they, them not needing a sectorial party, and he's also obviously trying to wipe out the Yelitshaked party, which doesn't cross the threshold. What about them? That's exactly. I'm so glad you raised that issue. That's exactly what I was going to talk about. At the bottom end of the surveys, we see Yelitshaked. Of course, there are parties who are doing fewer, who are getting fewer votes. But her, she had a new poll in which that shows her party getting 2.2%, which actually made her people very happy because that's a rise compared to some of the other polls, but still far from crossing the threshold. And Netanyahu is doing everything to delegitimize voting for her party, even though it's kind of strange because if her party were to cross, that's another four seats. And she has said that she would go into a coalition with him. So that really, first of all, can you explain that? Why is he trying so hard to get her under the threshold? If she gets four seats, she would go into a coalition with him 
and he would have a coalition. But if she doesn't get four seats and she gets 3.1%, those are mainly voters who have listened to her and know that she want, she's now planning to join it. And now that's a lot of votes that his potentially for his block, which would be wasted. So now let's talk about the kind of people who are debating between all these parties, the Jewish home, Likud, religious Zionism. That brings us to the community known as the religious Zionist community. And Angela, you've brought us a wonderful guest this week. So I'm turning it over to you. So we've spoken here on the podcast at length of the two main battlegrounds of this election, the Arab sector, where turnout could well decide this election, and the Likud base, which Netanyahu is doing everything he can to mobilize, in the belief that there are hidden reservoirs of stay-at-home Likudniks, that if he can only bring to the polling boost on November 1st, will give him the majority, which has been so elusive in the past four elections. But some observers believe that they may have detected another critical constituency, one which actually has regularly high turnout, but what makes them unique is that in these elections, they may contain within them this special sector, the only group of voters which could perhaps switch between the pro and anti Netanyahu blocks. It's not a large group, but even 1% changing sides could determine the outcome. I'm talking about the Datilumi or national religious community, most of whom are quite right wing, but a small section of whom are slightly more moderate and stuck in the middle and perhaps maybe looking slightly more favorably at one of the anti-Netanyahu parties. And to speak about that group and the Tilumi vote in general, there's no one better than our guest today, Yair Ettinger. Hi. Hi, Yair. Formerly of this parish, the religious affairs commentator of Israel's public broadcasting corporation, Can, and the author of the groundbreaking book, Prumim, or in its uh, upcoming English title, The Great Split. It's a really fascinating book about the ins and outs of the national religious community in Israel and also modern Orthodox in America and some some other locations. Yeah, how are you doing? Hi, friends. How are you? Thank you for having me today. Thanks for joining us. So, Dalia will, I think, open the batting here. Okay, we have to settle some real scores here. Angela and I have a deep disagreement. It's not even a disagreement. It's, it's more like a Talmudic argument over the definition of this community. So we just want to ask the expert because I believe in expertise. How do you define the national religious community in Israel and how many of them are there as a portion of the electorate? Okay, uh, as in a simplistic definition, it would be the a community that is between the Haredi Orthodox community, uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredi, uh, and the secular sector. Um, we are talking about people who are Orthodox in their way of lives in the religion. Uh, they're still Zionist. They're still uh, involved in, in many Western values, in many ways of the Israeli society, uh, but still Orthodox. They are in between. Where do they, uh, how how many, do they relate? Wait, I just to pin you down here. How do they relate to what we call the traditionalists, the Masoratim? Are they included or not included? Now we're, it, it's, it's getting complicated because <laughs> some of this community would define itself or in practice would be uh, Masotim, not really uh, orthodox, not 100% orthodox, but on some kind of spectrum uh, of orthodoxy, of obeying the mitzvot, the Jewish law. Uh, so that would be, it's very hard to define. And on the other hand, not some of the this community would be not so much involved in Western values. Some of them would be in their practice more like Haredim. So it's a spectrum. 
uh, I would say most of them, you can define themselves men as with knitted kippah and maybe uh, believe in some way in the importance, in the value of the state of Israel, sometimes uh, messianic values, uh, value of the state of Israel. It's very hard to define, but somewhere in between. And that is uh, why your second question is hard to answer. How many are there? How many the team do mean are there? There are different way of counting. Uh, in today's uh, research, it's very common to ask people how do they define themselves. And um, here you would find that uh, the Tilumi community is huge. There is a very famous uh, uh, research done by uh, Tamar Herman from the Israeli uh, Democracy Institute uh, that defines the team Lumim as 22% of the Jewish community in Israel. Although in practice, some of them are secular, define themselves as secular or even as Haredi. How come? So it's, uh, I think this is a major thing to understand about self-definition. People in this generation are on the spectrum. Sometimes they're not binary in their, even in their social definitions, re religious definitions, they, they would define themselves or identify with the religious Zionist community, even though they are not so much religious Zionists, they're not so much Orthodox, or on the other hand, very much Orthodox. Uh, that means, okay, uh, are you confused? No, I, <laughs> I think you're making it very clear, but let's bring it down to the subject of our podcast, and this is the upcoming election. So we have one party, which is doing very well in the polls, maybe it may be the third largest party in the next Knesset, which literally calls itself religious Zionism. Now, how accurate is the name that that party has, or list in this case, it's the joint list, basically, which has adopted this name of religious Zionism. How accurate is that label? Can I glom onto that question for one second? Why is it that I've spoken to one or two people who consider themselves religious Zionists in Israel who say that's not a fair name because it doesn't represent us? Right. And that is why this is a brilliant move by Bezalel Smotrich naming his party beginning uh, 2021. Yeah, last, uh, last as, election, yeah. Yes, last election as He was never the mainstream Tsiyonudatit. Uh, you can see it also from polls, how many people would identify as, let's say, the conservative, more conservative the team Lumim. This is a very uh, a very small uh, portion of the Datim Lumim. He is at the end of the right end of the Datim Lumim uh, and still calling himself Tzionu Datit, which means and Tzionu Datit is a movement, is a is a movement 120 years old uh, Tzionu Datit and Bezalel Smotrich naming his party Tzionu Datit is a brilliant act saying, okay, I'm the Tzion of the Tit. If you want to join Tzion of the Tit, you would ident identify with me or vote for me. So, okay, so obviously, as Dalia said, many people say they don't represent me. And as you just said, it's it's a brilliant move, a branding move by Smotrich, the leader of, uh, of, of the list. Mm -hmm. What percentage of people who vote for religious Zionism do you think are what we would normally call the Tilumi? And, and just to say, considering they're getting 12 to 13 seats in most surveys. Okay, so uh, Bezalel Smotrich, this is a very complicated situation because Bezalel Smotrich with his Tzionudatit party, he is growing because of so many reasons and circumstances uh, and, uh, and coalition that he made. 
for the first one is with Itamar Ben-Gvir. Itamar Ben-Gvir is the most radical, right-wing radical uh, factor in Israeli politics. In the past, he was illegitimate, and now he's a star. But his, his, uh, his support comes not only from the team Lumin, people who are religious. His support comes from people who are right-wing supporters. Maybe in the past, they would support Likud party. Maybe in the past, they would support Shas party. Uh, not really Dati, not classic Datim Leumim. So the people who are attracted to the, his messages are uh, not necessarily Datim Leumim. Uh, some of them are. Uh, Betzal Smotrich in the past, he never before uh, 2021, uh, ran separately. He always did coalitions with more mainstream Datim Leumim, more, more mainstream Tzionu Datit. And then, I mean, his, his way... Uh, maybe two mandates out of 120. But today he is on the wave. He is at the momentum of support uh, among the rest because of what happened with Naftali Bennett. Maybe we'll touch this uh, uh, <laughs> just now. Uh, but uh, um, um, what happened is that there is no mainstream, no mainstream Datim Lumim. So that's what I. That's why I said before that the Tzadik Smotrich did a brilliant move. There is no mainstream party for Datim Lumim for Tzionu Dati today, other than uh, the only party, which is much more to the right. So you, you mentioned Naftali Bennett, and this is a fascinating thing. He is certainly a classic Datim Lumim, though people would argue, on the Dati light end of the spectrum, but certainly mm-hmm. a man with the Kippah who went to Bnei Akiva and who went to the educate, came through the education system of Datim Lumim and identifies himself as such. And he's the first prime minister to come from that sector, and he's not even running this election. His party has totally imploded and disappeared. There's now a Yelich with something a bit different, which we'll, which we'll discuss. Aren't the, aren't the team I'm happy that they had a prime minister of their own? Okay. Naftali Bennett, when he came to power in 2021, uh, he was already not a consensus, let's say that. His most uh, powerful rivals came from the Datilumi community. So part of the uh, Datilumim supported the government, and I think less and less is the, the, the percentage are, I don't know how many, but I think the majority did not support at the end Naftali Bennett's government. But some did, yes, yeah, some voted for him, some thought that this government with the left-wing parties and Arab parties is a good thing, but most of the Team Lumin did not like that government. What happened was that Naftali Bennett lost the whole support that he had, which was not huge before the last elections. He lost it. So now there is no party for mainstream the Team Lumin. Actually, Naftali Bennett, he was, he served in the Knesset for a decade. And in this decade, amazing things happened to the religious Zionist politics. Actually, the center of the religious Zionist um, community politics disappeared. And there was a huge vacuum. And into this vacuum entered Bezalel Smotrich. What interests me is that it seems that Naftali Bennett began to lose support, as I think you were implying, before the last election. After all, you know, his party only got seven seats. And 
it sounds to me like you were saying his rivals were coming from the national religious community before he made that very fateful, consequential decision to to go into this coalition, to break ranks with Netanyahu. And could that be a result of the fact that he and Ayelet Shaked had tried to create something called the New Right, which was supposed to be a bridge between secular and religious people and a kind of, you know, um, a mixed community sort of party, as we say here. And maybe the harder, core, the hardcore, more right-wing uh, elements of the religious Zionist community were not that interested in such a thing, and they thought that was like some sort of a left-wing move even before he went into the coalition with the left. Is that part of the breakup? I mean, the, of part of the changes that you describe in the national religious uh, community as a voting community, as a constituency? Yes. Okay, so let's let's remember that Naftali Bennett, when he entered into politics, it was in 2013. 2012. Uh, yeah, 12, he, he, he got, he won the, le- he won the, the leadership primaries. in 13, he went to the Knesset the first right, time. Yeah. Right, right, right. And he was a rock star. People admired him all around. He was, he, he did amazing thing to the religious Zionist party. He, this is a party that was with three seats in the parliament and it became, uh, it had uh, 12 after the first election that Naftali Bennett appeared. So what happened was that Naftali Bennett uh, lost his support uh, gradually. First, when he he left the the, the Habayit Hayudi, he left the party. He left the mainstream party and said, "I'm I'm into trying to get a new coalition of soft right people who are traditional in in their uh, Jewish in their Jewish life, people who are not necessarily orthodox." Uh, and then, gradually, he lost first the support of rabbis in the synodotit then he he went to into more centered uh, israel centered israel politics and maybe most important Angel, uh, um, you are the expert he did not go with netanyahu there was a, a crack between these people and when the israeli system the political system is all about netanyahu naftali bennett lost support with Netanyahu's supporters. So this is part of what happened with Naftali Bennett when he formed the new government in 2021 with people from the left wing. And left wing is a very loaded uh, um, notion or, or, or word in the Tim Leumim's life, the Tim Leumim politics that he gradually lost the, almost all the support that he had. So let's bring us to the here and now. Bennett's not running in this election. Maybe he'll be back in politics at a later stage. But in the election taking place in three and a half weeks from now, this, what you call mainstream Datim Lumimis group, which is worth a few, a few Knesset seats, probably three or four, they're being fought over quite intensely by Likud. Netanyahu's making a big play for them. He's doing special campaign videos, he's going to places like Modi'in and Givat Shmuel and so on and, and really trying to, to find these people in their homes. And then on the other hand, you've got Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, which is doing the same and has actually got four quite prominent Datilumi candidates in the top 10 realistic spots of its list. Is this a real, is there a real type of voter who's thinking, should I vote Likud or should I vote Benny Gantz's National Unity? Actually, I think so. Yes, and you know there is a really funny thing that going on in uh, uh, in, in the last weeks. There is something they called 
uh, Anonim Shabbat. This is some kind of uh, newspapers. The, 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 are... the show leaflets, yes. Yes, and, and, the, the, and this is a very focused, uh, targeted audience to people who go to synagogues, to the team Lumim synagogues. And you see in these uh, pamphlets, in these papers, you see very similar ads from all kind of parties in Israel. Likud, Kachol Avan, Ayelet Shaked, and of course, Tzionut Datit. All of them are putting in their front the team or their candidates who are the team Lumim, who wear knitted kippah or with uh, women with uh, with a scarf on their head, uh, meaning we are the genuine, we are the authentic uh, representation of you, the team Lumim, like us, vote for us. And this is really interesting because you see it in so many um so many parties, and this is uh, maybe reflect reflects the um, the privatization or the 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 split, the big split that is going on now between not only parties, but I think in 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 the social life of the team Lumim. So as you said, I think there is uh, of course three mandates in the air that have to decide where are they taking their vote. There, these people maybe in the past voted for Bennett and Shaked or. Uh, even uh, older people used to vote for Mafdal, which was the classic, the Tilumi party, the the party that uh, was the party of the camp. So these people, what are they supposed to to vote today? So of course, some of them, or maybe uh, a big portion of them, would vote for Smotrich because they have no other option. They say, okay, I'm interested in sectorial party. And even though not all of us are identified exactly with Tino Datit, with Smotrich, maybe we have a problem with Bengvir, uh, let's vote for him. Let's not be so much Feinschmecker. I don't know how <laughs> picky, you say it. Picky, picky. Yeah. Yeah, Feinschmecker is so, great. If, yeah. if our like listeners don't know what Feinschmecker is, then they have to look at that. Now, I have to ask <laughs> okay. a wrap-up question because we have to end, but I want to try to pin you down to a wrap-up question. If I think about that appeal... You know, they're putting all their religious candidates up front. On the other hand, there was a big split over whether to vote for a party that's going to go with Netanyahu or go into the anti-Netanyahu bloc. What about issues? What are people actually going to be voting on in the religious community? Is it going to be the coalition politics of Netanyahu or not Netanyahu? Is it going to be the number of religious representatives who wear the same knitted kippah as me or you, I should say, in the party? Or is it going to be you know, what, they're actually, what they actually stand for in terms of policies. How can you characterize what might make up somebody's mind? Okay, so this is, a, I think it's a general question about every Israeli right now. What, we what ask is, it about uh, every Israeli, yeah. but now we're asking yeah. you about religious Israelis. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the every Israeli have to decide whether uh, he, he goes with the block, with Netanyahu's block, or against the block. This is first first issue in these elections. Let's say that, in, and this is not the first election. But other than that, the team Lumim are really afraid of the word left. Okay, most of them are afraid of the word left. They're afraid of, of being identified as left. So people who are not so much afraid of this would vote for guns. They are in the center. They're saying, okay, maybe I can I can I can vote outside the block. Um, I think there is maybe maybe a little less than one mandate that would consider that voting for Gantz outside of the, of the block, maybe Gantz will go with Netanyahu at the end. They don't know, so maybe it's it's legitimate, but Gantz is, uh, they, they suspect Gantz because Gantz maybe has some people who identified as left. 
but other people would vote for Ayelet Shaked, and Ayelet Shaked is also has also a problem because Ayelet Shaked with the Bayit UD, they, they don't pass the threshold. So maybe uh, maybe it's it's not good to vote for her. So there is a there is a lack of something in each camp, and of course some people who would not like to vote for Smotrich. There are many the Tim Lumim who would not vote for Smotrich, maybe because of Smotrich, maybe because of Bengvir, which is too radical for them, and maybe because of Noam. This is also a tiny, tiny party that is part of uh, Smotrich party. The homophobes. Uh, a coalition that is uh, anti, anti-gay and very much conservative. Uh, and we should remind people that Bibi was the one who conv- who begged them to go back into the sure, party alignment sure, with them. Sure. And of course, Bibi. And some people, I think maybe many the team Lumim at the end would vote for Bibi. And this is why the Datiim Lumim is such a boiling uh, uh, place right now. All of these parties in the center and right and soft right are competing one another in, in I don't know, they hope to get at least part of these three mandates that could define who would be the next prime minister. No doubt about it. The soft right and the religious Zionist community could decide who would be the next prime minister. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for being with us again. And I do recommend our readers, as soon as Yair's new book, The Big Split, comes out, order it. It's one of the most important books about Israeli society in the last few years. And Shana Tova, Gmar Khatima Tova. Shana Tova to all of you. Thank, thank you. you for being with us. And it's that time of our show again. It's my favorite time of our show. Angela, is it your favorite time? Oh, if, it, if it's your favorite time, then I'm certainly on it's, board. That's right. It's party time. Yeah, and this this week is my turn, and you preempted me because he talked about the history and how old National Zionism, Religious Zionism, Datilumi uh, as a movement is, which is my question this week. What is the oldest of Israeli parties? Depends on how you define a party. Uh, which can... Israeli party goes back furthest in history as an actual movement? I'm going to guess Agudat Israel. So there are six or seven, depends how you also define their exactly. roots, parties in the current Knesset with roots going back roughly a century. Actually, Gudat Israel is not the oldest. It's the third or the first, fourth oldest. Let's quickly, which parties, quickly, which parties today have roots in the roots very old in past? like a century sure, uh, early have, Zionism. I mean, of course, labor. Or anti-Zionism yeah. in the case of Agudat Israel. Labor, Agudat Israel. I'm talking about the roots. I'm not talking about their earliest names, right? You know, no, no. Uh, Na- names have changed. Course, There's yes. been splits and mergers and so on. Absolutely. We have Agudat Israel. We have Likud. We have labor. Uh, we have the Communist Party, which is one of the oldest ones. I'm trying to think of the other three, two or three that you have in mind. So basically, communists, 1919, the Palestinian Communist Party, which was actually, the words were in Yiddish, because that's how they showed they were anti-Zionist, by speaking Yiddish and not in Hebrew. Agudat Yisrael, the other an- original anti-Zionist party, slightly earlier, the Katowice conference in in 1912, so they're sort of in the middle. Likud is actually the youngest of the old parties, 1923, when Jabotinsi split with the Zionist movement, set up his own Zionist movement. And then we come to the two other streams. One is the national, sorry, the religious Zionist stream, and the other is the Zionist socialist stream, who are the oldest ones. They're sort of competing. We talked about, we, you mentioned Meretz and Mapam a moment ago. They're the younger. Actually, I didn't mention them, but I, of course I had them yes, in mind. Yes, but they're, they're sort of the younger part of yeah. the Zionist. They're 
well, Meretz, which is partly Mapam, its roots are in Poletion Small, which is 1920. Poletion is the oldest Zionist socialist movement, which sort of, with all kinds of little groups in, in Eastern Europe, but really was founded in 1901 in Minsk. However, religious Zionism, or what was then called Mizrahi, which is the acronym for Merkaz Ruchani, is the very oldest of the current Zionist movements, and it was founded in 1893 in Poland. So that is impressive. It's maybe Naftali Bennett and the Yetzirah have finally buried it, but this is the oldest of Israeli political parties. And with that, let's go to the future. The future is, for now, we're in suspense about the future. We're still in holiday mode, so we won't be here next week, but by the time we get back in two weeks, we'll be in the home stretch, which means we will know about things like the final decisions on disqualifications following Supreme Court rulings. We're going to see voter certainty firm up, or we might see some late-stage political dramas or even shenanigans from our increasingly desperate politicians and candidates, and we'll be here to make sense of it all. Thank you, Anshul, for being my partner in this podcast. Chag Sameach. Thank you to Nahara Malkin, our producer and editor today. I'm Dalia Shendlin, signing off here at Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. Subscribe on your podcast app, listen faithfully, and we'll see you soon.